Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name's Alexi. And I'm Sam. Today, joining us is Kate Rankin from Pipeworks Brewery. And as always, we are going to use beer and metal, maybe less metal today, more beer, as a lens into culture. So without further ado, let's dive and get heavy. Joining us today on Heavy Hops is Kate Brankin. She's the creative director and head of product development for Pipeworks Brewery here in Chicago. Uh, Kate, thanks for joining us. Oh, yeah, this is great. Thanks for having me, Sam and Alexi. This is awesome. How did you, how did you end up at, uh, at Pipeworks? Um, it, it, it's actually like kind of a crazy story. But I, uh, I mean, the short answer is that I was, home brew- I was a home brewer um uh during you know throughout college and then also um when i was living in my mom's basement um and then um met some friends while i was uh working as a waitress and one of the friends um through the restaurant and he was a glass blower and he was making plates for the restaurant and then he uh knew that there was a brewery that was being built um, very early stages of Pipeworks, what is now Pipeworks. So he uh, introduced me and um, yeah, I basically just uh, started volunteering for a while because there wasn't really anything to do and uh, still still doing it. Not volunteering though, um, obviously not volunteering, but um, yeah, it's been, it's been kind of an unexpected journey, but uh, definitely definitely an interesting one. Before uh, before you ended up volunteering at Pipeworks, you were you were studying, right? Um, studying beer, or, or you were studying... in, you were in in school, right? Too. Yes, yeah. So I I didn't go to school for anything uh, beer related. I took one um, chemistry course because I was an early on like an early uh, pre med track, which didn't happen. But um, I had learned that beer was like was an alive thing that it was living and that it was manipulatable and my experience and exposure to beer before that had pretty much just been you know cores light uh keystone light because i went to u of i so i drank a lot of keystone light um and yeah so then i was just kind of like loosely exposed to the concept and then studied uh just you know buying books um homebrew forums uh to to kind of learn and understand. Awesome. What what kind of time frame was this all taking place? Um, what stage was the beer industry in, and um, yeah, where was Pipeworks at this stage too when you kind of entered this scene? So this would have been um, two thousand and around two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve. Um, maybe you know I kind of got into home brewing around two thousand and eight. Um, so the beer scene was obviously very different. Um, very few craft breweries, which is why it was kind of such a big deal for um, my friend uh, Paul to have introduced me to people who were, in, you know, getting pipeworks off the ground. Um, because there were very few breweries out there at the time, it didn't seem kind of like it was that there was possibility and potential. It was still very new. Pretty much just, you know, Half Acre, Rev, Goose Island, uh, and then Pipeworks was uh, new. So it was, 
as far as where Pipeworks was, it was um, fresh off of the Kickstarter beta. Um, they had just gotten money from that. Jarrett and BJ had. And um, it was pretty much just Scott, Jarrett. Um, so just, you know, a handful of people drew of, of now 18th Street. Um, everybody was just kind of, you know, working on a psycho brew system, doing a couple batches a day um, or a couple turns a day. Um, so all very new. It was mostly a lot of hanging out and finding things to do. There wasn't really structure yet uh-huh. or any sort of plan that was discernible. Um, others will probably hear that and say otherwise, but um, <laughs> it, was, it was very, uh, it didn't feel, it was very like, you know, kind of like, felt like hanging out and then maybe we were brewing beer. Um, but it, it was, yeah, it was, definitely kind of a a wild time sounds like it uh so how would you compare brewing at the washington facilities in those early days compared to now you're at pulaski and you have expanded into quite a larger space and uh having been there myself a few times it's just a massive space and i want to know kind of how you're utilizing that space compared to how you were utilizing the washington space yeah, it's, it's very different. Um, there's been a lot of learning and, um, it, the differences are mostly procedural and, you know, to, to grow and to expand, you need to put in, you know, mostly safety practices and, um, it's a lot of system growth as well. Instead of just, you can't transfer kind of the homebrew feel directly to a production facility feel. Um, so yeah, there's been a lot of, um, you know, led by, led by Garrett, uh, Lewis, who's the founder of Pipeworks. Um, there's been a lot of procedural expansion. You know, we've brought in people who are, who have more experience than anyone else at the brewery did at the time. We've learned a lot, but we've also, um, really still leaned on kind of the original spirit that the brewery started with, which was experimentation, um, exciting flavors, um, kind of a, coll- a collective approach to our brewery um, recipe formulation. Um, there isn't, we still don't have exactly like some one person who makes all the recipes, which is something that I think a lot of breweries now do have. There's kind of like a, almost like a military structure or just, you know, general corporate or just structure we'll say um uh, where there's one person at the top kind of steering the whole ship and we've uh when it comes to a recipe creation we've kind of kept it where it's communal and everyone can contribute and everyone can can comment so you know we've it's it's a very very different scene it's a very very different uh brewery and it's it's definitely something that i think you know we're we're proud of because it's uh, to go from kind of just casual home brewing feel uh, with, to something as you know production focused uh, now is is pretty cool. Should we dig into the first uh, the first beer? I think so. Yeah, I've got it right here. I'm opening it up. Yeah. Awesome. So this is uh, if you can hear that velocity, oh, yeah. velocity of light. <laughs> looking at about seven percent uh, double dry hopped oat India pale ale. Um, Kate, tell us a little, uh, give us a little intro onto this beer. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, 
this year is actually one of my favorites. So I was really glad that I was able to get it um, here. Cause I'm, I'm calling you guys from New York, um, as you know. But um, so this beer is, yeah, double dry hopped oat uh, India pale ale. And kind of the entire idea behind this beer was to have a beer that was hazy, hugely aromatic, but didn't have sort of the cloying residual sugar that's kind of uh, become synonymous with hazy beers. So in order to get that full-bodied, you know, mouthfeel, um, which normally get that slick feeling from sort of just um, unfermented sugars, um, we achieve it with oats. So oats have a ton of protein. So we're actually, you know, pounding the mash bill with lots of protein so that it feels full while it's still kind of like crisp at the end, which is something I really like about this one. Um, yeah, when you pour it, there's a really nice kind of foam, hazy stru uh, foam structure at the top from all that protein. Um, I don't know. I hope I hope you guys like it. I don't, <laughs> don't want to try to sell you on it if you don't, but um, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think it's quite nice. Um, lots of galaxy hops, which are the primary hops. Um, and the double dry hop uh, process is basically kind of just staged interval um, dry hopping, um, which I don't think the body of the aroma comes from. But, um, yeah, it also has cryo hops in it as well, which is a whole other can of worms. Yeah, I think that this is, uh, I mean, I've always been uh, a big fan of the use of oats in in beer. And I think that, uh, and especially in this style, I do, I do agree. I think that the, um, you're able to have some structure to the, to the body and also, um, have like a softer mouthfeel that the oats, uh, impart without having that kind of under attenuation that you mentioned. And so mm -hmm. you end up with like a crisper and, uh, essentially dry, a uh, drier and more drinkable, uh, drinkable beer, which is really, really cool. Um, and I mean, it still has quite a bit of like, uh, hop profile and almost the, I mean, you feel and taste hops in this beer Definitely. as well in, mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. So I think it's, uh, it achieves the goal. So you have velocity of light. You have, uh, was it the speed of sound too as well? Yeah. It did kind of turn into a whole series. We, um, the whole series built around sort of the oat base of the Indi the IPA. Um, so it's a different hop profile for each one. Um, but yeah, it started out uh, with Velocity of Light. We have Sea of Sound. Um, there's a few other ones that we've kind of ripped off the same concepts that aren't as, maybe aren't as popular, but um, and then we, do, we don't make them as, uh, in the same frequency. Um, but True Reality is another one. Um, yeah, so it's, um, it's, it's kind of an interesting base and then we sort of play with the hopping schedule and the different hops that we're using. How, uh, so it, I know that it's probably difficult to imagine making a beer like this, uh, in Washtenaw just because, <laughs> um, beers like this didn't really exist then in a, uh, in, yeah. a, in a certain way. Um, exactly. Yeah. But it, uh, you could imagine something like this actually coming out of more of a homebrew context uh, in a way, if you follow what I'm saying. Oh yeah. That's really, I mean, that's hilarious. Yeah. We probably would have, so this beer, you know, it's a hazy beer. It has the, the appearance of 
Um, it's a little, it's opaque, you know, it's not as uh, clear um, as like the West Coast styles that were popular around 2011, 2012. So this beer would have been something that if we had packaged at the time, people probably would have, you know, given fewer untapped scores because there was still this um, perception that beer had to be like fine, clear, translucent. And that was a, that was a sign of quality and it's completely flipped the script since then which is you know kind of nice <laughs> you don't have to not only is it a not, not only has texture become more of a uh, I don't know more of a quality of beer that people talk about but it also kind of you know relieves some of the stress to get a perfectly fine clear beer um, from the brewer definitely I mean I've always been a fan for sure of beers that have oats for the very reason that they have more of a body and you know I don't need a crystal clear beer all the time and by and large I mostly enjoy the more opaque beers because there's more of a full body richness to them that you don't really get mm -hmm. out of a clear beer and I mean we could use Ninja versus Unicorn for example which is a clear beer and mm -hmm. you know while there's still that Pilsner malt body that you taste it's just not as viscous I guess I would say as this beer definitely and I think yeah. a lot of that has to do with the oat addition for sure well even you guys even you saying Sam viscous it's like I mean Alexi you've been talking about beer for such a long time do you remember texture being something that was discussed <laughs> when discussing beer or is this something that you kind of realized is new too well I, I mean in certain styles I would say uh I think that um, That's a point. Yeah, I think in certain styles, but certainly like, you know, I, I think you make a fair point that when we're talking about like India pale ales in uh, in 2011, there was a, a universal body set or set of um, principles that were applied to all these pale styles like lo uh, light lagers, uh, India pales, uh, amber ales, things like that. Uh, that mm -hmm there were like really strong style requisites that were handed down by uh, the BJCP um, and the other forces yeah, that, be yeah. that really kind of guided um, what was acceptable for that style. And then also what the consumer expectation was. Um, whereas I think like uh, contemporarily uh, the, all of those deciding bodies, if we call them that, uh, are like way behind because yeah, of the format yeah. in which, I mean, like the format in which those decisions are made um, is is antiquated in some ways because things happen quicker as a result of the internet now. And mm -hmm. um, with the kind of hive mentality of uh, of producers that the internet allows. So things like this have really kind of changed. And I think um, uh, something like this is a lot more uh, is significant. I mean, obviously acceptable, but also uh, the appearance and things like texture. Um, there's a lot more leniency, I guess what I, is what I'm saying. And there's a lot yeah. of room for people to, uh, to express themselves uh, without without feeling bound by uh, style guidelines, which is, I mean, both a good and a bad thing. I mean, when you make a recipe, sure. you start with style guidelines, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I mean, yes. 
yeah. I mean, I think with style guidelines, it sets like a very vague parameter. Um, but I think brewing to style is something that we sort of decidedly didn't do um, just because it felt limiting at the time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it does provide like kind of a jumping off point in a structure um, to go off of for sure. Um, so, but I think at the same time, it was probably, do you think that uh, brewing on a small kit um, uh, imparted some limitations uh, to brewing things to style, like making uh, super duper clear beer? Because I remember um, early batches of beer probably looking more like Velocity of Light in some cases than NBU mm-hmm. as we know it now. Um, mm-hmm. And so... Uh, in a way, I mean, I think that it was uh, it was perfect that there was a decision to not, uh, looking at it from the sidelines, it was really appropriate to not choose to brew to style because, uh, you know, you have a wider expression set like you were, uh, like you had mentioned, but also um, brewing on a smaller system, it's just, it's simply difficult to brew, uh, to brew clear beer and with, um, with the style of sale as well, uh, sometimes it requires a lot of time to condition beers, right? Yeah. I mean, we, we definitely did our darnest to, um, to brew to style for, for beers like Ninja vs. Unicorn because, um, at least in some aspects, because it, that was important at the time and we wanted to be seen as real brewers um, who are writing experimental but respected recipes um so there was definitely still kind of a push to to do certain things to style and then kind of jump off of that so yeah i mean as as far as we were definitely pushing the system as far as it could go i mean i used to hand mash imperial stouts um in in like a you know on a painter's platform for a while. Um, but you know, we were, we were trying to go push it as far as we possibly could. Um, which meant like, you know, as much grain as you could fit in there and like efficiency was, was horrible. Um, but yeah, now, now obviously with proper equipment, um, it's a lot, (laughs) it's a lot easier to do that. Um, which is great. I mean, that's how it should be, um, for sure. Another thing that set Pipeworks apart from a lot of breweries very early on uh, was the choice of doing self-distribution um, and not really, and going about things in your own way in that regard too. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, that kind of decision and uh, do you think that that kind of uh, helped uh, to like, set you uh as a company apart from other breweries as well yeah um so that decision would have been made by garrett um at the time so by the time that i came on which was pretty early on um we were self-distributing and what that meant at that time was that there was one used astro van that we would load up and someone would drive it to a handful of accounts and we would drop off cases um but once you sort of built and once that um, infrastructure for a wider self-distribution was built, it sort of just made sense for us to keep it. Um, It also allows us to kind of have 
hands, hands-on contact and overall just general control of what we are making and who is, who's getting the beer and what accounts. And it's, it, um, it allows us just to have a little bit more uh, weigh in on how the beer is treated. Um, it also, as you know, now we're actually a brewery that distributes out of state, um, collect, you know, out of, we can count up all the states. Um, more than we self-distribute in Chicago. So uh, we take that, what we've learned at self-distributing, and apply that to how we work with distributors and and who we pick to distribute our beer because we want someone who's going to treat our beer in another state the same way that we would do it here in Chicago. Um, So it's, it's really kind of allowed us to understand that side of the business, um, much more and we're much more involved than we probably would be if we um, had a local distributor as well. Do you feel as though uh, looking back now, um, do you think that it was the, it was the right decision? Um, And uh, do you feel uh, as, and and what are some of those principles uh, a little more specifically that you're, uh, speaking about when you're looking at partners outside of Illinois. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it wasn't necessarily just my decision to make. Um, but I think that the self distribution has definitely allowed us to have relationships with retailers, uh, learn what they need, learn what they want, um, try to respond with as much agility as we possibly can um, if we see that certain things are moving and other things aren't, we can kind of move and pivot to respond to that. Um, if we know that certain people really love one type of beer and other distributors don't, or other retailers don't love another type of beer, there's, you know, there's abilities. We have a little bit more hands-on um, conversation than if we were just, uh, I mean, I can't speak to what it would be like to actually have a Chicagoland distributor, but um you know, you hear you hear scary stories of beer getting stranded in warehouses and people being unable to break contracts and all of that. And so we've just kind of circumvented that completely. And um, you know, it also allows us to employ delivery drivers who also know a lot about the beer. So when they're dropping the beer, it's possible that they can strike up a conversation and kind of act sort of um, in a dual way of almost a rep as well as a um, just a delivery driver. Um, everyone is therefore engaged um, in the overall process. Uh, I mean, that's that's ideally how it's working. Um, so I think it's, I mean, specifically, yeah, I think it was a good idea. It also helped us to kind of maintain just the overall flexibility as a company to kind of move. Um, I think that's maybe the biggest advantage we had doing that. So you kind of mentioned uh, communicating with the bars and the guests uh, who consume your products. Have you found that you kind of tweak your recipes in any sort of way based on how the public perceives your beers? Or do you stick to rigid guidelines for or rigid recipes for your beers? Um, we, we definitely listen to what people say. Um, if we make a beer and everyone's picking up on, or everyone's responding saying it's too bitter or someone's saying it's too sweet or, you know, we hear that over and over again. Um, in some ways untapped has been a really 
sometimes painful, but always um, useful <laughs> tool for us to kind of gauge overall sentiment um, on anything we release. I mean, I every time we would release a beer, I, I used to sweat every time I would open up Untapped. I'd be like, God, these people are merciless. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I mean, I'd be like, you know, flipping out over three and a half or four stars or whatever it is, you know, and you'd be going through their account and being like, God, but he likes this. Why doesn't he like this? Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think people realize how much they're actually communicating with the producer often <laughs> when they're punching in their reviews for that, um, that type of thing. Um, so yeah, we definitely listen. We pay attention. Nothing is ever set in concrete. Now that we are a production facility, there's definitely recipes um, that we try to replicate. Uh, we also don't want to lead people the wrong way. You know, you want a certain amount of uh, consumer reliability. So if, if Lizard King's supposed to look one way, taste one way, people want it. People who are going to be repeat buyers of that beer want it to look and taste uh, a specific way. And so in that, in that respect, we definitely try to hone in things and then uh, create reliability for certain brands. There's other things, you know, maybe like Velocity of Light, we do try to do that because we do, we did it once, we liked it, we'll do it again, we want to repeat that, but we might try to tweak it to make it a little bit better or maybe we're picking up on too much mosaic hops and those are outshining the galaxy so maybe we'll kind of tweak it by a couple pounds um but generally if we're re-brewing a beer we're trying to uh create reliability for that brand um you know part of the thing that we also listen to is not just how the beer tastes but also kind of what we're projecting to the customer so that way if they see a beer called Velocity of Light and on the description we put double dry hopped oat India Pale Ale, what is that projecting to them? What do they what do they think? Is that an accurate description? Because we want it to be. Uh, we want it to be communicating sort of generally what the contents of the beer are. I mean, if it um, if we had just said, you know, double dry hopped oat India Pale Ale, but there really wasn't a presence of hops in there. I feel like, you know, then you're kind of letting people down and, and you hear about that. So we take a lot of those, that type of feedback uh, to heart, especially when we're, when we're rebrewing something and then we kind of consider past feedback, um, how things went well or if things went well for similar types of beers when we're writing recipes for new ones and when we're coming up with new labels and new names and trying to, you know, find descriptions that could potentially fit some weird thing, you know, whatever. We're trying to, you know, it's like um, in the same way that a restaurant would plate something specifically and the plating kind of offers communication. And when the server drops it on the table, there's a little bit of communication. Or when you read something on a menu, it's communicating something. We try to kind of apply those types of expectation management uh, to the overall packaging as well. Definitely. Is that like, really lo <laughs> is that long winded? Did that, that, no, that, that was good. I, I like that. <laughs> I like that you used the word plating. Um, so when you switched from uh, Washtenaw over to Pulaski, how did the and plating? And it was Wabanzia. Yeah. Oh, Wabanzia. Yes. Yeah. I keep saying yeah. Washtenaw, wrong don't don't I? Street. <laughs> wrong W Street. They're very close for those of you who don't live very in Chicago. Very close. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, they intersect at one point. Um, 
So when you're discussing plating of beers that were, we'll call them your legacy beers at this point, um, how did the brewing process change going from the smaller environment to Pulaski? What kind of growing pains did you go through in trying to replicate the beers that you have been making all this time? Um, I think we learned that we didn't, as, as hard as we tried in the smaller scale facility, it was really hard to have consistent results. Um, and we were able, we realized that, you know, we're able to do, to our, and we no longer have our equipment that is preventing us from having consistent results. So it was more refining the um, production or the brewing processes, making sure we're doing everything, you know, we're writing everything down, we're much more organized, um, taking notes on everything. There's documentation of when things are done, what time, um, you know, we really want to make sure that if it's not the equipment and it's not the brewing process, then also the ingredients. Are we getting consistent ingredients? Are we, are, is this hop similar than it, this year than it, as it was last year? So there's, you know, there's a lot of changing. Um, as far as you were saying, what were you saying? The, um, it's kind of like the, the differences. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, there were a lot of things don't directly scale up too. We learned that. So you can't just go from a 10 barrel batch of something to a 30 barrel batch on, you know, a worse equipment to better equipment and think it'll be the same. Um, it's kind of just like, um, I use a lot of like cooking metaphors when talking about beer because I think it's more relatable for more people um, but you know kind of like you know if you have one pan that's going to sear things better than another pan or you know that your oven dials off by like 10 so you turn it to 10 degrees hotter when you actually want it to be 10 degrees lower you know there's certain things where it's just kind of like getting to know your equipment and getting to know the process um, on, a, on a larger scale um, another thing that changed uh that changed over um, was moving towards canning. Um, yeah. What uh, what kind of an impact did that make uh, for your business? And um, how do you do you think that that's kind of guided that the medium uh, has informed some of the decisions about what's made as well in some ways? Yeah, I think so. Um... Yeah, we um, we originally were packaging in 22-ounce bottles, and that was mostly because that was a, a easier packaging. Um, I mean, we were hand-packaging, hand-bottling bottles for, for years, um, which was awful. But, um, we're, uh, so, but now that it's um, moved from hand-packaging 22-ounce uh, bottles to using a Maheen, which is kind of like a small-scale bottler, uh, counter pressure bottler um, to now a, a wild juice canning line. Um, there's definitely more consistency. I think for us, the cans are just, you know, like anyone will probably tell you, I mean, more mobile, um, a little bit more accessible feeling than uh, purchasing a 22 ounce bottle. It's like kind of weird now to show up to a party with like a bunch of bombers and like ask the host to pull out glasses and be like, let's pour it out. I guess that um, depends on what party you go to. <laughs> that's true. That's true. I mean, for me, yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, or parties in general. I wish, just, see, I've forgotten what parties are like now. Uh, it's been so long. <laughs> I haven't, <laughs> we're, we're, been isolating for so long. Um, 
but uh, you know, I, I just think kind of the the signals of quality changed. Um, there's also a little bit more. Um, you know, you want to be able to take a beer to take a beer to I don't know where where else where do you go with beers? Um, but like you know, for example, okay, we had our beer um, in Sox Park. Um, in what is it called guaranteed rate now um something like that but, yeah uh, you know, yeah I, mean, I don't name. even you know I'm, let's, let's change the name i grew up year. on the south side <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll always think of it as comiskey um but um so you can't really have 22 ounce bottles in that that venue that feels a little weird so i feel like it kind of opened up a little bit more for us um people are a little bit more comfortable with cans kind of moved generally as an industry in that direction um, but maybe the more recent move was that we also started packaging our uh, Imperial Stout, which are 10% beers in single cans instead of four-pack cans. And that was kind of like a scary decision to make because in that, for some reason, we were, you know, we were worried that people wouldn't buy single cans of a beer. Um, it, we were worried that it wouldn't be like the it would seem more quality if it was in glass than it was in a can. Um, but I mean, I think we've found that overall people are still responding to um, high quality premium beers, high alcohol in cans, um, just as they were in bottles, which is kind of surprising to me. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, are you guys, do you, do you guys see, I'm curious, do you guys ever see, um, are you ever turned off by the packaging of a product? Uh, I would say initially if I'm engaging in a new brand that I've never heard uh -huh. of, uh, the packaging definitely sticks out to you first. You know, if you're, I'm just, I'm from a small town uh, north of Chicago. And if you walk into Benny's or Jewel, you're going to have a plethora of different beers, uh, you guys including. And yeah. not to like, put you guys on a pedestal, but literally your can art stands out among every other brand just because of the colors and just the graphic design okay. of the cans that you do put out there. So I will say I have had your beers before I knew who you were in a small town before I moved to Chicago. So oh, cool. that's kind of where I come from. Um, on the tip of heavy imperial stouts in a can versus bottling. The first time I actually saw that was at Spiteful this year. I didn't know yeah, you guys were doing that yeah. either. Um, but it, it did throw me off for a second, but I still ended up buying the cans and they were, I didn't notice any discernible difference. And uh, maybe it's me being a beer drinker. I don't mind though. I don't think there's a difference in quality. What about you? It takes someone of a certain size to do it, to break the door down for others. And yeah, I think I yeah. think with um, with Revolution putting barrel aged Imperial Stouts in twelve ounce cans, um, mm -hmm. that really and with the kind of general consciousness large uh, audience that that brewery has, um, uh, synonymous with the quality of those particular beers, I think that uh, you know the quality of those barrel aged big stouts that they make uh, makes people confident in making that choice that okay i had something that was awesome in this medium i'm open to trying other things in that medium mm -hmm. um and yeah. all of it really goes well towards chipping away at this like larger notion that um 
canned beer is yellow fizzy beer, right? And and that's the mm-hmm. that's the hurdle everyone was scared of in the first place, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it seems like it's been so long since those days, but really, you know, it hasn't. <laughs> no, so, no. Yeah. I mean, that's how I yeah. grew up. That's what beer was, you know. Same. Yeah, same. <laughs> uh, and I think you're seeing a lot of cha- a change in flexibility in, yes, the medium, but also the number of, like, the, the quantity of the medium, I guess. Like, I've seen uh, two packs. I've seen single cells, uh, four packs. I mean, it's it's kind of all over the place. And so um, there's a lot of room for the single pack and arguably um, with how kind of consumers want to uh, try out a lot of different things, uh, you know, breaking the, allowing the retailer to break the package and sell individually or doing it for them. And if you're, if you're not packing with the, uh, with the tops, um, then you're encouraging that type of behavior among consumers, which is, which is pretty good. And I think that, um, it goes with where the, where the trend is happening, uh, generally, I think, uh, like speaking personally, um, it took me a while to get used to the notion of having an Imperial stout, uh, in a can. And it, like at, at a certain point, I think it was, uh, drinking one of those like revolution, uh, big, big barrel aged beers. And mm-hmm. I, and that, that's what broke it for me was that this tastes exactly the same. Why am I so concerned about the medium? Right. Like uh, <laughs> if, yeah. a, if anything, like, look, this can looks awesome. You get all of the artwork on it. Exactly. Um, I can take this can anywhere. I can like smack myself over the head with it and not die. Like, you know, there's so many, there's so many great things about it. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that it takes some kind of experience for, for people that may be uh, a little bit more stuck in their ways like myself to, uh, to get over that hurdle. Um, and so it's, uh, it's very, it's very fun. And I, th- and I think that um, it's, it's got to be, it's got to be nice for a brewery too. Uh, when you're thinking about, okay, I'm putting a lot of overhead into cans or uh, I have to order a certain number of cans in order to make this like a profitable thing. Um, it's got to be nice to know you can put any of your beer in that medium too, right? Yeah, I think it's, um, there's definitely benefits to having a single packaging size or vessel um you know it's it's one packaging line to maintain it's one basic unit to order um one label size one label template that you're working off of um so there's definitely some consistency benefits there um and i think you totally nailed it when you were saying that it just allows people to try more things um i was at like a a bottle share and it's just you know you just see people taking out cans of beer and pouring little bits out for everybody. And that's kind of how people are trying things. And that's good. I mean, it doesn't matter if it's a can or if it's a 22 ounce bottle. And if you're sitting at home, you know, for me, it's a little bit less of a big commitment to crack open a 16 ounce single can of an Imperial Stout than it is to open a 22 ounce bottle. Um, And so if the two options were either, for us, they were either 16 ounce or, or 22 ounce. Um, it just made sense for us to go uh, smaller and more agile. Um, yeah, it, it 
yeah, Rev definitely paved the way in a lot of ways, especially in the Chicagoland market for people to be more comfortable seeing that on shelves. Um, it is kind of funny because I feel like there was a time not too long ago when if something was, you put your like most premium beers in glass, you know, big bottles of glass and, you know, you'd walk into a store and you'd see like all those, you know, the brewery bottles lining the top of the shelf and you'd be like, oh, these are the premium, you know, they look like wine bottles. This is amazing. This is elevated beer. And now it's almost like kind of bringing it back down from that like pedestal that the glass kind of provided and making it just more like, yeah, remember this is fun. It doesn't need to be a big commitment. It doesn't need to be a big deal. Um, it can just be something you can enjoy with your friends and split, you know. I definitely think it makes it more approachable, especially for the average drinker who maybe doesn't drink these heavy stouts, you know. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of them don't want 22 ounces of a heavy beer, but they want to try it. And if you give it to yeah. them in a more familiar format, I think it's definitely more approachable. Yeah, definitely. And I think with so many craft breweries now to uh, buying, uh, buying a beer can be like kind of a risk. Like it's, it's a lot of money you're paying for what is essentially a luxury product. And it's our goal to make that reliably quality. Um, but if you're someone who's trying something for the first time and maybe you've been burned by trying a bottle that you didn't like, or that was maybe less, less of a good quality, um, it's kind of hard to get someone who hasn't even had your beer before, but has had just other types of beer that maybe look kind of similar, um, and they're going to be turned off by that. So I still think there's, even though craft beer is obviously so much more common, prevalent, accepted, encouraged, um, expected uh, in 2020 than it was in 2012, there's still so many people who just kind of don't really, who are still just dipping their toe in um, and still learning. So you, you want to make it as easy for them to get on board as, as they can. Definitely. I'm kind of seeing the market expand ever so slowly bigger, and it's getting to the point where I feel like a lot of people who are new to it kind of view beer the same way they view wine. They don't know what the hell they're looking at most of the time. Yeah. And it's definitely an intimidating thing, and, you know, compared to a 22-ounce bomber, definitely 16-ounce cans, single-pack or four-pack. That's the way to go. It's just easier for people mm -hmm. to kind of pick you up off the shelf. Yeah, and that goes into kind of the plating thing we were talking about where, like, you know, I think about this all the time. Like, if you walk into a wine store and you don't know what the heck you're looking at, like, what do you look at? You look at the prices, and the prices <laughs> kind of show you what is quality. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, and it's not necessarily commodity-based pricing. It's more just kind of implied uh, tiers, of, tiers of quality that maybe a single – Vintner might put out to project different levels of quality. You know, same thing with like vodka, super premium vodkas versus normal vodkas. Mm -hmm. um, but beer doesn't really have that um, thing yet. It's still kind of, there's kind of a range it's expected to be in um, pricing wise. So how do you project quality to people? Um, and, you know, you kind of just, try to project fun a lot of the times. And if it looks fun, then that's kind of what people want, you know? Um, well, beer's project fun. Project something that's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, beer wine is too. Fun. I drink a lot of wine, but... <laughs> yeah, no, me too. But yeah. beer is fun. But I, I, think, yeah. I think that's the, the most simple marketing uh, idea. 
And this is what uh, macro producers uh, uh, impart as well, too, is that the label or the branding should tell you, uh, if it doesn't tell you flavor, it should tell you what you want to experience yeah. when you enjoy this. Yeah. What, what does what does it say of lifestyle? What does it say of... What's uh, the vibe? Pe- yeah, what's yeah. the vibe? And, and like, <laughs> what do you imagine yourself doing with this beverage too? <laughs> exactly, um, yeah. Uh, so it's uh, it's definitely it's interesting to see um, the uh, sort of boundaries of what can go on labels and what does go on labels just totally fly by the by the wayside. And I think that, you know, the last kind of frontier of a lot of this is the beers that are just uh, ha- that are uh, simply labeled instead of wrapped entirely, too. Uh, I remember very early in the can game uh there was a lot of concern that i had as a consumer about buying things that were uh that were not fully wrapped um that were instead just like labeled thrown on there and that that was there was an indication of quality that came with something that was like fully wrapped um but i think in the same exact way that we were talking about rev throwing barrel aged beers into cans um it took uh, it took producers, it took uh, influential producers, and with the help of the internet, um, you know, to uh, make this practice more okay. Yeah, I think that's a really good. I think about that a lot too. Um, just because when we started out, it was like we got to get to printed cans. We got to. How cool will it be when we're not hand labeling or wrapping all of our bottles or wrapping all of our cans? It's going to be amazing, and it is hundred percent. Um, but there's also, you, you know, the wrapped cans or the stickered cans, whatever you want to call them, they kind of signal something else entirely now. And they signal like small producer, they signal small batch, even if it doesn't say that on the actual label, just the type of, you know, the individual can with a sticker on it shows like uh, agility, freshness, you know, kind of implies those things a little bit, which is why I think it's interesting that you're seeing breweries like Goose Island who are, you know, uh, is it ABI now or just InBev? I'm not sure what the the thing is now, but, um, you know, large, massive global companies are now getting wild juice canners so they can do small, agile batches. And it kind of shows, you know, it, it shows like a different, it's like a different brand type, a different feel. It's part of that overall vibe of like, hey, this is limited. This isn't something that's permanent. This is fleeting. This is ephemeral. Like, this could be the only batch. This could be a one-off. Who knows? Um, and I feel like that's kind of what stickered cans have <laughs> have shown. So even like large producers now, you can't, they, they want to have that in their portfolio. They want to have that kind of like punk rock feel of just putting like a sticker on a can. Punk rock. Punk rock. Punk rock. rock craft beer. Punk rock. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So I realized, um, Kate, you have the Ninja versus Cryo, right? Uh, the Haze, yeah. Haze. Oh, yeah. we have Ninja Haze. Okay, cool. So we all have the same thing for some reason. I thought we had we had different things. Nonetheless, so <laughs> let's jump into uh, NVU versus the Haze here then. Um, okay. Since we're talking about, uh, since we're still talking small about. Batch. Small batches. Small batch. Small batch beer. Yeah. Um, so you have Ninja versus Cryo, Ninja versus Haze, Ninja versus Unicorn. 
Um, uh-huh. Why why all these variations on a theme? Um, well, there's obviously, you know, Ninja versus Unicorn, double IPA, West Coast style, um, pretty classic, clean yeast profile on that. Um, and it really was just an idea to kind of do a spinoff or, or a variation on Ninja vs. Unicorn, that same hop profile, uh, using a different yeast. So the same yeast that we use in Velocity of Light, um, you know, frequently called like British Four or London Ale yeast, um, uh, to kind of get a different flavor profile, a different look, and just a different texture of the overall beer. And just it started out as just like a small experiment. Um, a small riff on it and it's been pretty popular. People like it. People like the, um, I mean, I, I enjoy it. It, I think it, um, kind of accents the hops that the hop profile in Ninja vs. Unicorn in a different way. And it really does just by changing that one variable, um, sort of change the overall experience of the beer. Um, not necessarily for the better, but it's just a different, a different experience in it. Um, also, you know, it's, um, for the moment, um, a, a wrapped can, um, it's, it's something we're putting out because it did start as kind of like a small batch thing that we did one time, but I think now we've done maybe close to 300 barrels of it total, I would say. I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, um, do you guys have it? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. So we have the Ninja Haze, and we actually did pour a little bit of Ninja versus Unicorn to have this. Uh, oh, cool. Because do a side-by-side. Why not, right? Yeah. We're here for it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I'm interested in your, your I mean, experience. What, yeah. what are you guys getting? <laughs> I mean, definitely immediately you you can just feel a more full-bodied experience from the beer. Mm-hmm. Um, and it almost feels like you get more of a fruit profile from the haze as opposed to the original ninja versus unicorn. Yeah. I would argue yeah. the ninja versus unicorn is definitely like a tighter, slightly firmer beer. Uh, generally speaking, the, uh, the waves of flavor come in a pretty, uh, predictable, but for me, very comforting way. And mm-hmm. that is like, mm-hmm. you get the hot profile, you get, um, you know, the fruit, you get bitterness, you get, um, you get the malt profile you kind of get everything with uh, very little kind of yeast impartation, um, uh, but it's a, a really, really drinkable. I mean, very, very drinkable for eight um, percent. Definitely. And then, whereas on the other side, you have uh, the haze, and I mean, the beers look very different from like a color standpoint. Um, the lacing head, everything. Uh, I think the haze just kind of has more. Uh, there's uh, something to it to where that uh, like the lacing really sticks to the glass and just hangs around. And uh, as a result, I think, you know, looks can really kind of inform your drinking to your drink uh, in a lot of ways too. Uh, in I mean, you know, you always look at the aroma, you look at the flavor, but for me, the look and uh, lacing especially kind of just tells me a lot about what I can anticipate. And so, with this, you get like a beer that's structured totally differently. Like it's a, it's a little fluffier. Mm-hmm. It's uh, definitely mm-hmm. less firm, uh, but is more. I would argue like expansive as far as the body goes. I mean, it's it's coating. Um, it's a little bit. 
dank, I would say, as well. The hot profile shows in a, a little bit of a different way as a result. I think I get, like, a little bit more of the florals on it, uh, and whereas NVU is a little more fruit. Um, and the finish is a lot longer, too, uh, whereas mm-hmm. with NVU, it, it, dries, it dries out and... Uh, does the drinkable thing, which is awesome. I mean, I think that's a difficult thing to accomplish for an 8% beer. Um, whereas with the NVU or the Haze, everything kind of sits around for a little longer, which is is something you expect for that style too. Mm-hmm. Damn, see, that's a review, Alexi. There so, you go. That's good. <laughs> I'm so used <laughs> to those three three bottle caps, four bottle caps. Uh Kicker, but that was, that was lovely. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was uh, never good at numbers, I mean, good so I was good with words. <laughs> yeah, put how it do you fit that all? Yeah, how do you fit that all? I mean, that would be like the rapier style. Um, yeah, that we I, I still live in that. Started off with yeah. doing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we remember that. Um, yeah, I mean that. You know, everything you you said, I I pretty much agree with. It's uh, as the yeast is low flocculating, you get a little bit more kind of lingering. It carries those hop particles a little bit further into the beverage. It's not fully crashed out. So you kind of see a little bit more of that flavor and aroma from the hops kind of stays and lingers in the beer. Definitely more lacing, higher protein content in this one as well. Um, not from oats necessarily, but just again, uh, still without flocking, without flocculation, which, you know, particulate falling out of a a liquid um it it really does kind of affect the overall experience um i mean there are some hop differences between the two as well um subtle but just i think overall the the main difference between the two beers is still the the yeast um yeah and then this the label of this beer is just the Ninjaverse Unicorn label, and then I just blurred it in Photoshop, basically. <laughs> so really, uh, really uh, not like not uh, the best, uh, maybe. But we're working on. I'm working on kind of improving it. Uh, but I, I thought it was funny at the time. Um, every time I look at it now, I'm like, oh god, I wish I had done something a little bit better. But um, no, I kind of. Yeah. I, I think that's a unique creative design for sure. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even notice that when we were uh, cracking it, but now, yeah. now that we've lined now them up that, next now. to each other, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do a side-by-side. Side. <laughs> I equated blurry with hazy, I guess. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it kind of makes sense. You know, when you're two ninja versus sense. unicorns in, your, your mind drifts that yeah. way, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I, you know, part of the Piper brand building has just been creating this whole, like, bizarre universe and narrative and um yeah so we have like the ninja versus unicorn and unicorns have just become sort of like such an, a figure within our brand um and we don't you know we don't have to stick to that but um there's always kind of like a playfulness um like kind of fanciful thing um there's like like i said there's like a whole epic legend i've like built up in my mind that i'm sure no one else it's following between the unicorn and the ninja, but you know, something, whatever, whatever helps you create. Could we get some backstory? Um, yeah. What's this legend? <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like there's, there's <laughs> so, I mean, I, okay. So there's ninja with unicorn and then there's, um, I feel like they come from like two different perspectives on beer, two different, um, mindsets on beer. And so within there's different like schools of, 
uh, ninja, you know, martial arts and studying. And I've kind of like thought of that as like different schools of hopping profiles. Again, this is like only in my own head that I, you know, probably shouldn't be saying out loud. But um, no, we're going to write a zine next. (laughs) Yeah, there was actually, you know what? We we've gotten a lot of fan fiction over the years, um, which is people submitting their own legends and their own thing. And we, you know, we used to have a whole series of beers like Unicorn versus Santa, Unicorn versus whatever. So it's like this kind of like endless turmoil and this kind of like endless fighting and debating over beer styles, talking over beer styles that that's been going on between these like characters. Um, so yeah, this beer is called Ninja vs. Unicorn vs. The Haze. So the idea was kind of just, which is a ridiculous title. Um, so, uh, it's NBU, not so words, Ninja, yeah. yeah, so NVU, um, we actually can't say Ninja vs. Unicorn with the exception of, uh, Ninja vs. Unicorn beer on any beers because of, for a legal reason. So everything has to be NVU, um, <laughs> vs. The Haze, which was just kind of like, now the ninja and unicorn are joining forces to defeat this new trendy enemy, which is hazy beers. So now they both sort of represent <laughs> different old guard styles of beer fighting, I guess, now this like new guard style of beer. Um, doesn't make sense, but, you know, <laughs> we've do- done a lot of beers, so you kind of have to create a trajectory for yourself in order to... Uh, keep coming up with new ones i guess i don't know <laughs> where does uh nvu fit in uh nvu versus the cryo fit into both this narrative and the um the flavor yeah. profiles that we're talking about so um into the narrative it's basically just like another trendy newcomer enemy so you know basically like ninja vs unicorn are kind of like the boomers now fighting like what is first millennials and now Gen Z, it's like, what? What are all these new ideas? Um, <laughs> but <laughs> the cryo is um, in so cryo hops. You know, you guys uh, familiar with those? Um, so it's basically just like a process of hop making. So normally, in making pelletized hops, which is how most brewers get their hops. Sorry, it's being pedantic. You guys probably know this. Uh, no, feel well, free to yeah, go feel for free it. To go I feel like okay, the people okay. need uh, a little lesson. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, never want a mansplain. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, like, uh, so hops are normally pelletized. So in the process of pelletizing hops, uh, hops are a organic thing that grow on a vine. Um so there's oils within the hops, and the oils are actually what give the beer aroma, flavor, um, and all those good things. So that's why we use hops. Um, but when they're pelletized, they're exposed to some heat in the pelletization process, um, which slightly alters and distorts the aromas and hops to what we're used to normally. So the cryo hops are basically the hops are instead of uh, pelletized and exposed to some heat and pressure. They're um, basically just sort of flash frozen and then shattered. And then those fragments are supposedly, supposedly more unadulterated versions of those oils that we're so familiar with in beer. Um, so they do um, distribute differently in beer. They fall out or flocculate differently in beer. And um, they also have a different overall actual structure um oil structure 
so um yeah so the cryo is what the goal of Zapier NVU versus the cryo was um to take similar hops that we have in Ninja vs Unicorn um but to use the cryo versions of those hops in the beer um so it's uh, definitely, in my opinion, a little bit more, uh, you know, cannabis, stinky, whatever smells, um, a little bit less sort of like the fruity ester profile from the haze. Um, and it's a little bit more on kind of like the earthy scale, uh, orange rind aromatic scale, um, than maybe the two other versions. I don't know if you guys had that beer. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, Okay. We've we've enjoyed that beer. Yes. Wish we had it here to, yeah, to uh, to square away the uh, the the myth and the legend. But um, it's, it's, so, uh, will people be seeing cryo hops more frequent? I mean, I feel like they are seeing it uh, cryo hops yeah. more frequently. Um, and there's what of the popularization about 11, of it? Yeah, there's about eleven pounds or so in Nindiverse Unicorn versus Haze um, because just to kind of give it a little bit of a pop. I think it, it is becoming more of a staple ingredient, um, which is awesome. I mean, it's cool to see like another process. So like we've been talking about how the process affects the beer, just going from like small equipment to large equipment, larger, better equipment, how that affects the flavor. I mean, it's cool to see the hop industry and supplier industry going through those same changes as the overall industry grows. Um, so to see, hop producers trying new things experimenting new things with new things it's um yeah it's exciting Definitely. i hope it becomes more common yeah yeah i mean how would you relate using cryo hops to maybe fresh hops um since those are pure unadulterated hops um what's kind of the difference between cryo and uh just raw hops um i think so i really don't have too much personal experience in fresh hopping um, but I have had several fresh hopped beers. Um, but I think it's the ability to have a higher concentration of hops in the cryo hops because it comes in like kind of like a powder, um, which any brewer will probably say and agree with is can be a real pain in pain if you're uh, dry hopping from the top of a tank because it kind of blows up a little bit. It can be a big pain. Um, so it comes in kind of like a powder, and with you're not getting that sort of vegetal hop quality that you can get if um, hot, wet hops are added uh, to the beer. So sometimes there's, you know, there's more, more biomatter, more surface matter um, that, that can be added. Um, again, and I think there probably is still an oil structure difference between the, the two versions. And, and but, I would imagine there would be an absorption uh, aspect as well with regard to the, yeah. uh, so the fresh hops uh, just absorbing mm -hmm. liquid and impacting the the out the or the yield. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, and then also their fresh hops are I think more primarily added um, a hot side, so before the beer has gone into the fermenter. So there's also the heat from the wort in that circumstances pasteurizing whatever's living on those hops, even though hops are antimicrobial. Uh, but then also, you know, affecting the overall oil structure in that case as well. So cryo is usually added most, if, if you're smart, is added cold side. Cool. 
So yeah. Do you all have a lot of wet hopping experience at Pipeworks, or do you tend to? No, we really, we really don't. Um, I think there's been maybe one beer we've done it with, um, but only a only a handful. Um, yeah, we really, we really don't have too much of that experience. Sadly, maybe that'll be the next one: Ninja vs. <laughs> Unicorn vs. Wet hop. The, the, the wet hop. The algae monster. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. Taking it back to the beginning. They had to go back time in order to fight their earliest enemy, Gen- their predecessor. <laughs> the whole honor. Gen X versus the millennials versus the yeah. prehistoric yeah. ancestors. Yeah, Virtus America's greatest generation. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'll just keep going back i guess i don't know <laughs> if you can't go forward you have to go back yeah you right? gotta go back yeah, gotta go somewhere gotta back go to the through it right <laughs> i just rewatched those movies yeah, man, right. <laughs> hey we're <laughs> in you quarantine tell? you know you got all the time <laughs> yeah exactly exactly how did you uh, uh, I got how did you end up in uh, in new york kate um yeah so i'm you know i'm talking to you guys from quarantine or from you know not quarantine um from New York, the land of um, isolation at the moment. Um, I so my my boyfriend and I had been doing a long distance relationship for a really long time, and he lived in New York for work. So we, um, you know, I, I talked to everyone at Pipeworks and kind of just told them where the next um, stage and phase of my life would probably take me, and they were willing to work with me on doing a long distance situation. So I actually work remotely for the brewery in, uh, in New York. So it's a lot of, uh, you know, it's a lot of Slack. It's a lot of messages, it's a lot of phone calls. Recently we've been incorporating zoom meetings. Um, and, uh, obviously I'm unable to fly back frequently, but for a while I was uh, making regular trips back into Chicago to, to do scheduling and production meetings. Uh, but now we're doing it all virtually for the moment. Um, yeah. What are some of the um, big differences or maybe there aren't many differences between um, what we see in Chicago, what breweries are doing here versus what are you seeing in, in New York or I suppose on the East Coast generally? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the um, the business models are definitely less large production facility focused. So we're more familiar with something like a Rev, Half Acre, Goose Island, or even Pipeworks in Chicago than uh, is available here in New York just due to land uh, space and, you know, production facility, warehouse constraints. Um, so there's a lot of to-go, uh, to-go beer styles here, uh, or situation, business models here. Um, as far as styles go, you know, it's, it's a lot of the, it's a lot of similar stuff. Um, definitely, um, leaning towards more of the hazy IPA, you know, you have your other half, um, Innerborough, which are both breweries that really focus on those kind of styles among, among other things. Um, and then you have other beer, other breweries like Folks Beer, which is a, a fave of mine. Um, people who are kind of making more like rustic styles. Uh, more focus on saisons and things and lagers of that, you know, lagers and kind of the more traditional styles. Um, but it really does run the gamut. I think there's, I think there's more variation in Chicago. I think people are more 
willing to make maybe the less trendy styles in Chicago. Um, there's kind of still a demand for the classic beers, I think. Um, and in New York, it's definitely a little bit more of like a ticker culture. So kind of trying to get the, the most recent, the latest variation on um, a hazy beer. Now, I'm sure there's a lot of people, people who will uh, disagree with that uh, overview, but uh, that's kind of what I picked up on anyway. I think if you look at the complexion of the breweries in Chicago, you definitely see uh, a pretty big gambit as far as what, uh, whether it's specialization or if there's breweries that focus on a number of different styles. We have uh, all of that, I think, and definitely people aren't scared of going after traditional uh, styles or brewing things to style. Um, I think that, I guess, uh, you know, one of the things that, because there's a funny thing about Chicago and New York, as always, about everything. Um, but I feel as though from the history, from the contemporary history of beer, we always see the Midwest and Chicago as being rather far ahead of the East Coast in a lot of ways. Um, I think that's true, yeah. With Chicago being, you know, not only uh, historically like a distribution hub, but also being a place where... Manufacturing, like everything. We were the hub to get to the rest of the country. (laughs) uh, Precisely. We're not a second city. No, (laughs) we are the main city. But as a a result, you have... um, as a result of that, you have beer, you know, Chicago has been a place for regional breweries from all over the U.S. for a long time. Um, you know, being close proximity to Michigan, we've had uh, all those craft beers in Chicago available to us for a long time. Um, and the imported beers have a really strong history here, too. Um, does the preference towards localism exist in New York in, in kind of the same way that it does in the Midwest? Um yeah, well, I mean, the, the scene out here is also a lot younger. I mean, not a lot, but in beer years, definitely younger. Um, I mean, Pipeworks is like old school at this point. Um, I think, you know, a lot of the breweries are under five years old here in New York, um, majority, um, with the exception of like Brooklyn Brewing Company. Um, but there's definitely um, a preference for local. But I mean, I... Um, you know, I bought Velocity of Light and Ninja vs. Unicorn vs. The Haze or MVU vs. The Haze at um, my local beer shop, which was pretty cool. So when I was knew I was going to be talking to you guys, I went and uh, bought these two. Um, and they're, you know, front, you know, they're very readily available. There's a good mix. There's, you know, um, Hop Butchers also out here. A lot of, I think the New York market is seen as something that people do want to be in. And there is enough market share in New York because it's huge um, for for Midwest breweries, West Coast breweries, for sure. Um, in it's, There's the same kind of industry um, height spheres that people are seeking, but there's also definitely room for um, other breweries from uh, other regions to send their beer. Um, there's lots of kind of new beer bars that are opening up. Um, yeah, I think there's still a lot of excitement, but the, um, there's definitely like kind of a, a, pro- a local pride around the New York beers. I mean, as they should be there, they, they are good. So definitely. It's, uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
So I used to work in a cocktail bar, and I know Chicago was kind of behind New York on the cocktail scene. And I'm just kind of wondering, is the New York cocktail scene still dominating over bar culture there? Or is there kind of this um, rising in the beer, craft beer scene over there? Is cocktail remaining pretty heavily steady in the New York bar scene? Yeah, I think the cocktail scene is definitely still strong um, and not necessarily competitive in the same way that they're not necessarily overtly competitive in Chicago. Um, again, it's, I think cocktails are probably easier to source the ingredients for than having people have the facilities in New York to make local beers. I mean, it's square, square footage here is just expensive. Um, so I think there's always going to be sort of a general focus on uh, cocktails overall here. But I mean, there's, there's people who are you know, there's, it's, it's strange to go to a bar or a restaurant and not see multiple local craft beers on a menu, no matter what type of venue it is. Um, yeah. There was a question that when we were, when we were talking about what we were going to talk about today, um, <laughs> there, there was something that you brought up. When we that, were scripting this. Yes. Yeah. When, we, when we were scripting this, uh, this unscripted <laughs> interview, um, uh-huh. There was something that you stated that uh, that I really, really liked that I wanted you to talk about. That was about. off the record, Alexi. That right. was off the record. I'm just <laughs> kidding. What was it? <laughs> uh, and, I, and I just want to throw it in here because I, I want to talk about it. Uh, talking yeah. about curbside, talking about the kind of uh, the world we live in at the moment. And you mentioned specifically curbside in relation to hyped beers or hyped styles of beer. Um, and the specific thing that I wrote down here is that curbside could potentially upend, uh, hype beers or hype styles. Can you walk me kind of through that in a certain way or what your thinking is with that? Um, or am I putting words in your mouth that you did not no, say that and no. I was drunk when we were writing that down? <laughs> no, uh, I mean, I, I think that, uh, curbside, um, I think curbside is interesting because it's this new tool that breweries have that we're using at Pipeworks to allow people to pre-order and then come pick up. I mean, it's obviously born out of, you know, COVID uh, prevention, COVID spread prevention, um, so that people don't have to actually come into the shop. Um, For a long time, I think there's sort of a status thing about being a brewery where you have a giant line out your brewery and you can kind of Instagram that, show that and be like, Look at all these people out here just waiting for our stuff. Um, and I think there's, you know, the hype, the demand breeds more demand, um, which is great. And I don't think that's going to really change. But I think you might see more breweries using the tools that they've gained and learned and um, had to had to put up with, basically, um, during this time. And implementing them for more pre-orders, we might see less sort of, um, you might see less kind of like, you know, big lines, big releases, big event type releases, and more just sort of like uh, ease of process for picking up beers, uh, I hope, anyway. Is um, that what we were talking about? Yeah, no. Well, I think, I think it's just, it, it, no, that is. And 
Um, without lines and without these like videos that follow the first person to the last person and it takes up 15 Instagram stories. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, that dominates people's perception of, oh, I want what they're all having, you know, as someone Mm -hmm. who comes from like, um, I currently work at a bakery where frequently pre-COVID, our lines drew across the block, you know, and that kind of hype and sensation around what we do just created more hype and sensation about what it is that people are getting. And I'm kind of grappling with this in my own mind. If we take that away, is the hype going to go away or does our product actually stand on its own and people still want it? You know, I'm sure it does stand on its own, but, and you know, it's, it's also like there's something to be said for just making pickup processes smoother. And, you know, it's an Instagrammable line, but it's also if more people are getting it easier. I mean, I don't know. I, I think I don't know what it's like in the in the baking baking scene. But I mean, if more people are, are picking it up and then still taking photos and posting it on their Instagram, I mean, I got to imagine that perpetuates the same sort of excitement and, and hype. Um, is there is there a scene sort of in the, the line waiting? Because in the beer industry, there's always like people who are like, well, the line is the most social thing, which yeah. I never understand. But. <laughs> well, no, you know, the let's tackle the first side. Yeah, there's definitely a scene in the line, you know, when you're waiting yeah. for something that you're anticipating, mm-hmm. uh, you tend to form a community around that. And while I don't have experience in um, my bakery's line, I have experience in doing that with concerts. And oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good comparison. Yeah, I made many, many friends just going to shows of a particular band, and you tend to see the same people over and over again. You're like, wow, there must be something here mm-hmm. that we're all here for the same reason, and you you know you're there for that reason because you're there to see that band, right? Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So you form this connection and it becomes this kind of culture of, oh, we're going to get to the show early. We're not only going to get front row, we're not only going to get to hang out with the band, but we're also going to get to hang out with these people who we're now becoming friends with through getting to know them through a medium that we're all mutually uh, acquainted with, right? And I feel like beer culture is the same. Any line culture. You're there for a similar reason. <laughs> are people sharing? Yeah. Are people sharing brownies in the bakery lines? Uh, I wouldn't say they're sharing brownies <laughs> in, a, in the bakery line, um, but you know, there's this, uh, there's definitely a connectedness between everyone who is there. You know, and I think it's really beautiful that these people are getting to know one another through something that they both they all enjoy. You know, and we're curating that for those people to have that experience and. I mean, I take a little bit of pride in that, as I'm sure you do as a brewer for yeah, people waiting absolutely. for your product. Oh, it's, it's extremely uh, like a humbling thing to see. And there's an excitement about it. And, you know, you're just like, it feels like people showed up to your party. You know, you're like, oh, yeah, you guys are into this. Like, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, we just, you know, I guess what I you know, you want it to be safe right now and you want it to be uh, easy. And I think it'll, uh, it almost seems like how do you create that same sort of community in the future um, using the tools that you now have? Do you just 
forget about those tools like pre-orders and um, or do you just kind of go do you do something different I don't know maybe maybe it's not a line but maybe it's some sort of after party or I, I don't know um, you know I know I've worked with Alexi multiple times on on beer events like how do you get people excited and have people excited to to be there and be a part of it um, the hype is part of it and how do you create that if um, now that we're in this new era for however long we're, we're here and how do you kind of translate that for the moment into sort of a virtual community and a virtual sharing? Um, is it just untapped or there's lots of breweries who are now doing, um, kind of like virtual zooms and, um, beer fest to go. I just saw that happening, uh, in Wisconsin, which is kind of like a crazy thing, but that's awesome. Yeah, it's interesting to see. Uh, I, I think the the sale aspect of it's really, really interesting as far as uh, this changes the retail dynamic pretty dramatically. I mean, uh, for a brewery like Pipeworks, for example, you're already taking beer to uh, a retailer on your own. You're not just dropping it in a warehouse. It's going directly to mm-hmm. a retailer. So how much further is that distance from dropping beer off uh, on adding 15 houses on that route <laughs> and dropping off a case at each of those houses. You're like the um, new wave milkman. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> the new wave milkman. So talking uh, just to, I'm going to rewind for a second. So looking at East coast breweries, a lot of the breweries that use uh, that rely or lean on kind of on premise sale have gone to delivering product uh, instead for a brewery like yeah. Pipe, for a brewery like Pipeworks that already self distributes, I mean, this is simply um, uh, for someone who is not a logistics expert. This is a, a pretty simple yeah, well, extension we, of that in some way. Uh, we definitely thought about that. We we actually aren't doing home deliveries right now. For our curbside, if people can come to our production facility and and pick up their order that they've pre ordered off our website, um, but and that decision came just because we were. We were, you know, uh, yes, we did have the infrastructure to do deliveries. We have like a crew of people who could have done home deliveries and we were, you know, planning zones and strategies like that. But um, for the moment, it just seems like, you know, maybe, maybe to Sam's point, we kind of still wanted to maintain the experience of people coming to the production facility to, to pick up beers. I mean, they can't come in the production facility but you're still kind of like going to where it's made and that sort of sets apart our retail experience from just going to a binnies or something like that um i think in new york the um the home delivery thing has been very common and i do think that's largely in part because you know few people have cars so few people you few people can necessarily walk to the brewery that they were normally going to, normally taking the subway to, um, to, to pick up beers. So instead, uh, breweries here are kind of like going, using their vehicles to go to different neighborhoods, zoned out in different, in different times and different days. Uh, but it is like kind of nice. I mean, I've gotten a couple wine deliveries, a couple beer deliveries. It's, <laughs> it's pretty cool. Um, and I, I think it, it isn't 
the most effective, I think, for most breweries, but it's definitely a new skill and a new tool and a new uh, element of logistics that people have tackled and, and proven to themselves that they can do. So I think while it may not maintain in the, in the same exact structure that we're seeing right now, I think it will definitely see more breweries and more companies in, in Chicago and in New York implementing elements of what they've learned during this process into their new business model. I think absolutely. And I think it'll give um, companies in general a more, a broader perspective of their online presence as well. Um, this yeah. has been definitely something the bakery I work for, uh, forefront. What, what bakery is it? Miss <laughs> Baker. Can you not say it? Mr. Baker. No, no, no. It's, oh uh, my God. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Pie Pie, my darling. <laughs> We are a vegan. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're an all-vegan bakery on the west side of Chicago, and it's oh. lovely. I don't know why I avoid the name. It's, it's just, a non-disclosure. It's, it's, uh, yeah, it's a, no, it's not. It's just always something I avoid names if I must. I don't know why. Just, yeah, it's a thing. Yeah. You need way, to create the whole legend behind it. Yeah, exactly. The it's, it's the myth, mythology. the legend. Who knows what bakery it is? We're going to go yeah. find him. <laughs> Yeah, um, <laughs> or they or they can listen or, to episode yeah, one of this podcast. Yeah, exactly. You can just edit that part out. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but either either way, it, we specifically the owner Heather uh, has modeled our entire business off of online presence, and we've grown a following just based off of this, and it's created this extremely high demand just online presence alone, and the beauty of uh, what we actually do. So making sure everything is very presentable and what the customer yeah. sees is very visually appealing. And it translated to people coming in and they're like, oh, it's not only really visually appealing, it tastes undiscernibly different from something that isn't vegan. And I know Alexi and can pack good. that up. Yeah. yeah, it's something, it's a dessert for vegans but also non-vegans because you can't really yeah. tell a difference and between how it tastes and what it looks like it's just created this insane demand that we have a hard time keeping up with honestly well that's awesome yeah it's it's um, every business's dream that, right yeah i mean that goes back to kind of what we were saying earlier is sort of the visual representation of something translating to the perceived quality and when that when those things are in a line um, that's when you know you've got something good. Definitely. I would have to agree. Kate, we cheated and we opened a third beer. <laughs> I hope you don't mind. What? I know we did uh. it. It just happened. It, it cracked itself. <laughs> what is it? It, 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 just, itself. it just opened on its own. It, it, it's the, uh, the Choice Hellas. And, oh, uh, awesome. Yeah, and I want... Uh, is this... Uh, is this a new future for Pipeworks? You have a Bach that was made earlier this year. Um, there are a number of different lagers that have been produced, uh, premium pills. Um, tell me about this kind of line of things, and um, is, this a, is this a new thing that people can expect from Pipeworks on the regular? Yeah, um, absolutely. So lagers for in, in our... Original facility, you know, it was just kind of like a row of uh, 10 to 15 barrel, 7 to 15 barrel tanks. Um, so we didn't, didn't really have the capacity to log or something for a long period of time. And we always 
wanted it to be a really well-made lager because if you may, I mean, there's nothing more in my opinion disappointing to having a lager and you're like, oh man, this wasn't lagered for a long time. I'm still getting notes of sulfur. I'm still getting notes of like, whatever, all the, I don't know, everything that comes from, you know, all the off flavors. Um, Well, you have nothing to hide behind, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. There's nothing to hide behind. And really, like, a lager, it, a really well-made lager, or just a good one, is um, as much a, a, it's like a really good indicator of process. Um, so we wanted to make sure we were fully set up for that. And, you know, a big part of the process is just time. Uh, so when we were finally set up to have the ability to allow our loggers to have as much time as they needed in tanks. Um, that's when we were like, okay, we're, um, we're, uh, we're good. We can keep going on this. Um, so we did our, you know, the premium Pilsner, um, which we had always wanted to make. And, you know, it's a hoppy, it's like a hoppier Pilsner a little bit, but, um, really clean, really crisp. Um, and so then we kind of started branching it into more traditional styles. And for those beers, um, I always reach out to Ryan Dugan, who's an artist in Chicago, and he kind of creates that sort of vintage-looking labels uh, for all of them, which um, is kind of like a realistic unicorn vibe, um, sort of inspired by, like, old Schlitz cans. I don't know if you guys have ever seen those, but, like, naturalistic Schlitz cans. Or the Schlitz cans have, like, vintage ones have, like, naturalistic wildlife scapes. So I was inspired by that to move in a direction for these brands as kind of um, naturalistic um, vintage unicorn imagery. Uh, the choice Hellas, though, is a unicorn having a picnic. So it's not really naturalistic and real, but, you know, I mean, there's a vibe. <laughs> I, see that, I see that all the time. Yeah. Don't you? Don't you? You, don't have, you don't have unicorns <laughs> having picnics in New York? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you just Only walked down the Chicago. Humboldt Park. And yeah, you, you, you've been <laughs> out of Chicago <laughs> for too long, Kate. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's definitely true. I mean, man, I'm trying to get back. I'm marooned out here. Uh, but, uh, the word choice, yeah. is, word choice is important. Premium choice using uh, those prefaces in the name, I think, also uh, kind of complements the, the imagery and the artistic uh, statement, too. Yeah, we're, you know, that was inspired by just if you look at kind of like old school beer cans, um, which I spend quite a lot of time doing, um, they had like those kind of boastful slogans on a lot of them. It would be like, select premium rice lager. And you'd be like, what? <laughs> like, what is this? Um, and so I kind of wanted to, to play off that and, and go off that that sort of vibe. Um uh, yeah, we actually have one that is, we're going to do a, a light lager, so something that's kind of easy drinking, lower ABV, um, you know, similar to maybe like a better made macro beer, if that's something. Um, so trying to come up with, um, you know, working on the, the artwork and the label with that with Ryan and the, um, the branding for that too. We're actually going to be releasing the uh, premium Pilsner beer in printed cans soon, so that's, that'll be exciting. Uh, I think the artwork kind of translates to something like that. We'll see how it goes. Absolutely, that leads into kind of the next question I had, and that was what 
what can we look forward to next from Pipeworks? Um, well, um, I think Apart we're going to continue. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we're, I'm actually really proud of the beers that we're making right now. I think it's some of the best we've ever made. I think our consistency is, has gone up quite a bit recently and that's definitely part of the team and the process and the ingredient selection. So I think we're going to continue to work on, um, on that. We also have been revitalizing our barrel age program. So we're definitely excited um, as soon as those beers are done aging to, to release those and get those going. Um, new styles, new, um, new types of barrel aged beers. So I think it's going to be a complete revitalization of the program that we had going. Um, and definitely, you know, just kind of like more, just more, more of the good stuff. More. We're going to have more. <laughs> it's excellent. More. I always look forward Not to more. Less. I love more. There <laughs> will more. be more. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, um, maybe some collaborations <laughs> with the bakery. Who knows? Oh, you <laughs> vegan, know, vegan adjuncts ve- out. Vegan adjuncts. Yeah. yeah. We're all about that. <laughs> Our beers are vegan. Yeah, exactly. For the no, most part. Definitely. Collaborations are future, I think. You know, it definitely sets you apart from everything else when you bring in multiple uh, multiple different mindsets. And, yeah. You know. That's why it's always been great. I mean, that's worked with Alexi on um, Bacchiectomy. And not only did Alexi come up with that name, even though I pushed back on it because I was like, I don't know if people are going to get that. But Alexi's like, <laughs> they did. They will. They will get the reference. Um, <laughs> and so it's like, that's a perfect example uh-huh. of um, when you have someone bringing in new um, and exciting ideas. Um, Alexi paired us with uh, Collective Arts, which is amazing. Um, so got to kind of get their input on malt and beer styles too, uh, or hops hot um, so yeah it's just you learn something new every time you work with someone that's for sure definitely i would have to agree with that um so i think we're we're wrapping up here kate do you have any uh Sounds any good. last topics that you want to uh to touch on or any uh shout outs that you would like to make oh um a shout out <laughs> a shout out a shout out not one word. Um, out. Um, well, no, not really. I don't know. I don't know when this will be released, but we're going to be doing, uh, we're going to be joining in part of the Black is Beautiful beer project, um, which is really exciting um, from Weathered Souls. Um, and so really excited about that. Um, otherwise, you know, no, I'm just, just shout, just shouting out. I'm just shouting. That's all I'm doing. Can you tell us a little more <laughs> about that uh, about that project that you mentioned? Oh, uh, sure. So um, it's a collective collaboration. So um, there, um, so it's you know in response to to raise awareness and to um, also you know donate money and kind of get it out there and just make a statement um, from Weathered Souls Brewing Company in Texas. And they've kind of created this global collaboration, which is pretty incredible, where they create the label, they create kind of the base of the recipe and encourage, you know, artistic riffing off of that. 
And then uh, 100% of the proceeds then go to a program of the Brewer's Choice um, that either works against um, police brutality or discrimination in black communities or works to uh, build up those communities. So, yeah, we're excited to be one of the breweries that um, is signed on to, to do that. So hopefully we're still kind of talking internally about what the actual liquid will be, but yeah, that should be in like two weeks or so or a week. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Well, we'll definitely stay tuned for that. And uh, yeah, it'll be an Imperial Stout or a Stout. Yeah. Awesome. Do you have a <laughs> social for people to follow Pipeworks or yourself as well? Um, yeah, Pipeworks is just Pipeworks Brewing. Um, yeah, I'm I'm Wax Factory, which was a reference to the initial. Pipeworks Brewery, which I just always <laughs> felt like was a crazy factory that was just out of control, um, which is where that name came from. <laughs> Kate Rankin, creative director and head of product, uh, head of product development at Pipeworks. Thank you very much for joining uh, Heavy Hops today, and uh, we look yeah. forward to seeing you next time you're in Chicago. Yeah, we'll yeah. definitely have to have a beer. <laughs> yes, definitely. Look forward to you guys and, and being seen that'd be great um thanks for the interview and the time and look forward to uh, seeing you guys both likewise take care bye mm.